can you sing the alphabet, Julie? Yes, yes, I could. Let's hear you sing the alphabet. A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y Z. You're not singing the alphabet. A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T Cookie Monster is in the letter of the alphabet. It goes Q R S T U V. You're you're just teasing me. W X Y and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time Cookie Monster. Next time Cookie Monster can do it with you. I'm leaving. I love you. I love you too. Thanks. Hi ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad, and the letters of the day are N and J for Nick Jackson. Nick, have the sunny days swept your cares away? The sun's red outside, oh. so I'm, I'm going to say no, but I like the idea of them doing that. We're still uh, dealing with some of that wildfire smoke in Northern California. So, uh... This is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about the Muppets. I forgot to do this last week, so I'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way now. Social media at lunatic daring on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and lunaticdaring.com, where you can check out our our sources list of the things that we're using to write the show, and also a watch list so you can watch along with us. I don't want to delay anymore. Let's just do it. Let's do it. Do you think television could be used to teach young children? This might seem like a strange question to generations of people who grew up with PBS and other early childhood programming, but in 1966, the idea was foreign enough to cause debate. One night, during a dinner party in the Gramercy Park apartment of Tim and Joan Cooney, three people were discussing that very thing, having no idea what they were about to create. Lewis Friedman Program director for WNDT, New York's premier public television station, was drunkenly and convincingly extolling the great educational potential of television. The party's hostess, Joan Gans Cooney, a television producer who worked under Friedman, agreed wholeheartedly and had already produced a documentary called A Chance at the Beginning about an experiment in Harlem that was the predecessor to Head Start programs all across the country. The third in the discourse was Lloyd Morissette, an experimental psychologist who also happened to be a vice president at the Carnegie Corporation, the foundation created by millionaire Andrew Carnegie in 1911 to support the American education system. Lloyd had a personal story to tell. Our older daughter, Sarah, was born in 1962, and when she was about hmm, two to three, that would be 64 or 65, I would come out on a Sunday morning when we typically slept a little later than usual, and Sarah would be in front of the television set in the living room watching the station identification signal. She'd been there a while, it seemed, cuddled up in her pink pajamas, draped in her favorite security blanket. The famous Indian head test pattern, 
that stations had been using since 1947 was not made to entertain. Sarah wasn't watching. She was waiting. Eventually, and at three years old it could have felt like two seconds or an eternity, the pattern would go away, and the television shows would start. And she wasn't going to miss a second of it. As a parent, Morissette had been concerned by what he had seen. As a psychologist, he was intrigued. Near the end of the night, he asked Joan a simple question and got a simple answer. The exchange would bond them together for the rest of their lives. I said, Joan, do you think television could be used to teach young children? And I said, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to find out. The question stuck with Cooney. Was it possible? She thought the current state of children's programming to be miserable. On one hand, there were the non-nutritional cacophonies of loud noises and poppy visuals, designed to sell toys and keep children hypnotized and quiet and out of mom and dad's hair for a damn minute. On the other were the actual educational shows, boring and droll, more classroom simulators than actual television entertainment. The true question wasn't could TV be used to teach children, it was how. Cooney decided to find out. In 1967, Joan took a leave of absence from WNDT, with Freeman's blessing, and, funded by Morissette and the Carnegie Corporation, began her study. For months, she traveled across the U.S. and Canada, interviewing experts in child development, in education, and in television, with the intent of creating a feasibility report. Was it possible, and what would it take? The resulting document, 55 pages in length, was entitled The Potential Uses of Television in Preschool Education, in which I laid out not only what people had said, they all of them to a man and woman were supportive of the idea of a television show to teach children, even though no one knew if you could do it. But I knew because, as I said in the study, they're singing commercials all over the country. Why can't you teach them something else? It, it didn't seem to me that it that you really had to set up this highly scientific study that we were going to set up to, to show that television taught. We knew it taught. So I turned in and I, I suggested in the report a show something like Sesame Street be created. I even talked about what the components would be in it and so on, some of which found their way into the actual show. What follows is a complex, windy narrative about how Joan's 55 pages resulted in the creation of the Children's Television Workshop. It's about fundraising and grants and all sorts of stuff too complicated to get into here, and I'm not really sure I understand all of it. If you want the nitty-gritty, check out Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street by Michael Davis, and Sunny Days, The Children's Revolution That Changed America by David Camp. They do a much better job at explaining the political and financial machinations involved. Nevertheless, when the dust cleared, the Children's Television Workshop was formed, its sole purpose being to develop this new type of children's programming. It was funded by the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the federal government. After a lot of hemming and hawing, and a fair bit of sexism, Joan Gans Cooney was named its executive director. She had been given $8 million to produce 130 episodes of television. It would take another 18 months to get her brainchild on the air. The first thing Cooney did was hire producers, all of them alums from the still-on-air Captain Kangaroo. Sean Stone, the writer whose drunken resignation from that program is legendary, was to handle the writing, the casting, and the overall structure of the show. He would be the show's chief creative voice. David Connell was brought on to executive produce, 
although there was still some beef between him and Stone from their kangaroo days. After a semi-successful detente between the two men, Connell came aboard the show, placed in charge of production. If they were going to make 130 episodes of this show, on time and under budget, they needed someone who could handle that volume, who could keep their eye on the ball today, tomorrow, next week, and next month, all at the same time. If anyone could do it, they knew it was David Connell. Her third hire was Samuel Gibbon, who at first said no. He was done with children's television. But in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Gibbon felt the need to give back to the world, to put something good out into it. He called Cooney and accepted the job. He would become the chief liaison between the creative team and the research team, which was headed up by their educational director, Gerald Lesser, a Harvard professor and one of the few prominent academics researching the relationship between children and television. Lesser organized a series of five three-day seminars, where the writers and the producers and the educators and professors and sociologists and executives met in an attempt to suss out the curriculum and the methods of the new show, which at this point was called the Preschool Educational Television Show. Later, several of those involved would credit these seminars for the success of the preceding show, even though they could get a little contentious at times. By putting all these people together and hashing it out, both groups, the educators and the entertainers, could contribute to and ultimately agree upon a vision for the show. They may not have all been on the same page, but they were reading the same book, and the story was clear. The show would be aimed at underprivileged children ages 2 to 4, who might not have had the advantage of preschool programs. It would teach the alphabet, numbers, and basic concepts like This is near! There would also be an emphasis on citizenship, cooperation, friendship, and social issues. It would feature a diverse human caste, and a focus on reaching low-income and inner-city children first and foremost. During one session, Joan Cooney was alarmed when a tall, hippie-looking, bearded man quietly entered one of the meetings and sat in the back. I whispered to Dave Connell, How do we know he's not here to kill us? Cooney recounts. Connell told her it wasn't likely. That's Jim Henson. Joan knew who he was, of course, and why he was there. So they said, this is who we want as a puppeteer. We want Jim Henson. I said, you think we could get Jim Henson? <laughs> oh, jaw dropped. And John Stone had worked with him at ABC on some fairy tales, Cinderella and one other. And John said, "I we can talk to him. And... Uh, I don't know if all three of them approached him, or just John, or John and David, but in any case, it took some talking to him. If they couldn't get Henson, Stone said, they should make do without puppets. One night, late in 68, John Stone was watching television when he caught a public service announcement that started with the message, send your kid to a ghetto this summer. The spot was sort of a satirical travelogue of an inner city neighborhood highlighting the ghetto's less-than-stellar facilities and contrasting them with those in the more upscale parts of town. It implored the citizens of New York to give a damn about the children of Harlem, and it ended with kind of a bleak message. You don't want your kids to play here this summer? Then don't expect ours to. 
Then it hit stone, like a pile of stones. Quote, For a preschool child in Harlem, the street is where the action is. As often as she is not, she is housebound all day while her mother works. And from the vantage point of her apartment, the sidewalk outside must look like utopia. Outside, there are kids hollering, jumping double dutch, running through open hydrants, playing stickball. Our set had to be an inner city street, and it had to be a brownstone, so the cast and kids could stoop in the age-old New York tradition, sitting on the front steps and watching the world go by. End quote. There was still the matter of the name. It didn't come quickly. No one liked any of the ones they could come up with, so they picked the one, according to Cooney, that was the least bad. This is a show for kids, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for well, kids. how's about we call it the Little Kitty Show? Well, I don't know. That sounds all right. I like it. I like yeah, it. I but we ought to say something about the show telling it like it is. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the nitty gritty Little Kitty Show. Yeah, that's yeah. not that's not yeah. bad. You know, I, I, like, I, I like that, you know. But little kitty can mean any child up to the age of seven or eight. Now I think we should aim this show right at the preschooler. Well then, how about the itty bitty nitty gritty little kitty show? Despite being worried that young children would have a hard time wrapping their developing tongues around it, they went with. These kids can't read or write, can they? Mm-hmm. No. Uh-uh. Then how's about we call the show Hey Stupid? No, they went with Sesame Street. John Stone didn't like it, but later said that he had been outvoted, and for that he was deeply grateful. Also brought on, at Stone's suggestion, was songwriter Joe Raposo, who became the show's musical director. The theme song that he would write for the show with some lyrical help from John Stone and a guy named Bruce Hart, in one form or another, has opened every episode of Sesame Street for 50 years. And nearly every Sesame Street song stuck in the back of your memory that you'll never be able to shake, Joe wrote those, too. Stone took care of the casting, under the dictate to hire a diverse ensemble. The possible actors to play the street's denizens were tested alongside real kids to see which ones they reacted to. Will Lee was hired as Mr. Hooper, the grumpy grocer. Bob McGrath would play Bob, the affable music teacher. Susan, the stay-at-home housewife, was to be played by Loretta Long. And the role of Gordon, a teacher who would act as the show's host, would go to Garrett Saunders. Lee and McGrath were both white, while Long and Saunders were black. This idea of a racially balanced cast went all the way back to Cooney's original proposals for the show. The pre-production of Sesame Street is unlike any in the history of television. The five seminars were just the start. Over the next year and a half, its producers had to figure out how to make an engaging program for children that also aligned to a strict curriculum from the educators. 10 to 15% of the $8 million budget went to research. Each bit, each idea, each song, each joke was tested. Did it maintain a child's attention? Did they retain what they were being told? How easy was it to distract them from the program? These forays into formative research were instrumental in determining the final form of the show. The more we read about it, the more we realize that if CTW and the people who worked for it weren't so baldly altruistic and good, they could have been terrifying. 
Jim Henson, who had long thought the image that puppets were for children, couldn't help but realize the potential of this new program and what he could do for it. Two new Muppets were created for the show, Bert and Ernie, two best friends in the odd couple tradition, where their annoyance with each other is only surpassed by their mutual love. Both were built by Don Celine from Henson Sketches. While there was a little debate, it quickly became clear that Ernie, the sweet and talkative orange puppet with the adorable laugh, should be played by Henson, while Bert, his uptight, constantly put upon, and annoyed roommate, would be best in the hands of Frank Oz. Hey Bert! Bert! Can you bring me a bar of soap? Yeah, yeah. Just just toss it into a rosy here. What? The soap. Just just toss just toss it into Rosie here. Who's Rosie? My bathtub. I call my bathtub Rosie. Ernie, why do you call your bathtub Rosie? What's that? I said, why do you call your bathtub Rosie? Because every time I take a bath, I leave a ring around Rosie. (laughs) Henson was also tapped to create animated segments for the show, something he had been experimenting with since the 50s, and had recently shown success with in his Oscar-nominated short film, Timepiece. In 1969, CTW created five one-hour test episodes of the show. They showed them to preschoolers in Philadelphia and New York that summer. And they, they, they came back with that, the, that it was liked, but that every time the street came on, it was slow going. And that was very obvious in looking at the test shows because we had no Big Bird, no Oscar, no Muppet on the street, so it would be this letdown after the Muppets and the animation. We watched one of these pilots, and we're glad we did. It starts with the Joe Raposo theme song, but sung by Bob McGrath, one of the stars of the show, and not a chorus of children. The most notable difference is clearly the fact that the human characters on Sesame Street never interact with the Muppets on the show. Bert and Ernie are treated more like surrogate audience members, watching the show along with us, commenting on it. They do participate in an awkward dance party, but in the safety of their apartment, not on the corner with the others. They are a standout, but not substantial part of these test programs. It wasn't quite working, but the answer was clear. The Muppets needed to get out onto the street. Henson created two more Muppets made to live on the street and interact with the human cast. Oscar the Grouch, an orange, yes orange, monster who lived in a trash can, meant to teach children about handling their emotions. And Big Bird, a tall, goofy, and at first kind of twitchy yellow avian that was another larger-than-life walk-around puppet like Splurge had been. By this time, Don Celine had brought Carolee Wilcox and Kermit Love on as additional puppet builders, and they contributed greatly to these iconic characters. To operate Oscar and Big Bird, no way was Frank Oz getting into a suit like that, not after the hell of playing the LaTroy Dragon. Henson tagged 36-year-old Carol Spinney, a puppeteer from Boston whom he had seen at a convention in Salt Lake City. That night, Spinney's show had not gone well, but Henson told him backstage that he had liked what he was trying to do and invited him to New York. Another adjustment was, unfortunately, necessary. George Saunders, who played Gordon, was let go. I found Saunders to be not great. 
He isn't a natural actor. He stumbles over his lines, and he can't sing or dance. He was replaced by Matt Robinson, who was already a segment producer on the show. After these changes, new episodes were produced and edited together with footage from the pilots. On November 8th, 1969, This Way to Sesame Street, a 30-minute preview for the show, aired on NBC. Two days later, Sesame Street debuted on public television. It garnered instant praise and success. Very early on, it earned a 3.3 Nielsen rating, which meant about 2 million households and about 7 million children were watching it every day. Within a year, Big Bird would be on the cover of Time magazine, and every kid in America could tell you how to get how to get to Sesame Street. Did you grow up watching Sesame Street? I did. I don't. I remember like my first or my earliest memory of pajamas was like a Cookie Monster onesie, onesie. And I definitely watched a lot of Sesame Street as a kid, but I don't remember a lot of it. Like it was just something that was there. It's It was one of the constants that you kind of take for granted, I guess. I don't know what the modern equivalent of that is. I haven't really kept up with children's programming, but. Sesame Street was just part of that frame of reference that you built for the world when you were two or three years old. And you like cookies. Cookie Monster likes cookies. He's a role model. It's great. Like, I'm I'm trying to remember specific sketches, and all of it is just a general awareness of the different characters that lived on the street. I grew up with this as a gigantic part of my life. I am the exact right age. I wasn't there when it started, but what a lot of people would consider its heyday of the kind of late 70s, early 80s, is right when I was the proper age to watch it. We're going to talk about the premiere episode. And as soon as the music started, it I was triggered. <laughs> as soon as I hear every time I hear that, that mm-hmm. simple theme song that Raposo loved the music and hated the lyrics from, of course, he didn't write the lyrics, but that's <laughs> just those notes. Doesn't matter who's singing it. Doesn't matter which version. It's been a million different versions over the years. Those notes just get me every time. And uh, and I do have children, so I have watched modern Sesame Street. So while, of course, I spent a long time not watching it, uh, I have, over the last seven years, been reacquainted with what the show is like now. When I was a kid, it was appointment television. It was, you, did, you did not want to miss Sesame Street oh, yeah. at all. Let's go ahead and get out of the way. We're not going to watch every episode of Sesame Street for this show. Because that would be its own podcast. Yes. Over 50 years of television. They created, uh, by my count, according to IMDb, they've so far produced 1,668 episodes over 50 plus seasons. And if you add to that 30 TV specials, 200 home videos, 100 albums, sorry, 180 albums, it's just, it's just not possible <laughs> for us to watch all of that. I don't think it's all available. We are also grown-ass men. <laughs> well, okay, we are, we are physically and intellectually grown-ass men, emotionally to be determined. Yeah, I'm gonna, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Sesame Street was not built for us. It was designed to be appealing for children and not have the adults want to kill themselves, but it's still for kids. 
I would also say it's also still happening. Like the story isn't finished and there are just we, we don't have the capacity to do it. It's just there's not enough time. It would derail the entire show. And so we're not going to. So we're going to spend this this week honoring the show and talking about we watched its premiere episode, uh, the very first ever episode of Sesame Street from 1969. Had you it, now I'm going to guess, given your age, that you hadn't seen this one. No, uh, it was kind of surreal to see because it's nice to know who's there from the beginning and who might have come on later. Um, like we don't have Grover, we don't have Elmo, we don't have uh, Snuffleupagus. Um, or at least not in that pilot. You know, we we had Bert, we had Ernie, we had Cookie Monster, although I don't think he was named. No, he didn't even talk yet. He was just he was he was a leftover from those IBM commercials, hmm. and he was on like Ed Sullivan sketches. He was just he was the new Muppet who ate stuff. We had Oscar, but it was different Oscar. Yeah, he's he's orange, as my my daughters both pointed out. He's very orange, and Big Bird's kind of twitchy. Big Bird was vaguely terrifying. I <laughs> he wasn't. He's kind of scary. It was something about the missing plumage on his head, and I understand that yeah. this is like the first draft of it, and he's still largely Big Bird. But there was something about him being, I guess, less fluffy that made it. I'm sure that was a design choice that was very intentional, but. When you had that sort of conical shape to him. Well, no, you're right. They they changed that on purpose. They understood that. Like the, it, it was a design choice that they that that they then regretted. Hmm. Uh, so they did they did change the look of him. And also we have to remember Carol Spinney, who came onto the show to to be both Oscar and Big Bird. He was just figuring out the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, when we get to the Muppet Show, it's going to be a while before Miss Piggy sounds like Miss Piggy. That's true. Um, when you go back to The Simpsons, it takes a while for Homer to sound like what we think of Homer Simpson sounding like. And the same thing here. Oscar and, and uh, Big Bird sound different and look different because these are their first these are their first tries at them. And it's still plenty punchy. And we, we actually get to see Jim on screen as himself. Granted, he's not named, but he's juggling for uh, a minute. He's juggling. Yeah. One of my proudest moments as a father is we were, I was watching it with my children and my seven-year-old went, that's Jim Henson. When she saw him juggling and I was oh, like, all awesome. right, good, good girl. Good girl. What I noticed watching this premiere episode, it's a lot slower. <laughs> Sesame Street was designed intentionally by Cooney and everybody else. One of her big ideas was that kids were so she watched kids watching commercials and realized how captivated they were by commercials. And so part of her plan was let's make commercials about the alphabet. Mm -hmm. Let's make commercials about numbers. Let's make commercials that sell the things that we want to teach. Later generations would call like MTV editing. Mm -hmm. But even for that, going back to 1969 when this aired, these commercials are a lot slower than what we would think of as commercials today. Yeah. (laughs) There were only four humans cast at that point. Um, Hooper, Bob, Susan, and Gordon. Um, and then there's Sally, the little girl, but I don't think she comes back. Like, they were pretty... The children were never really recurring characters hmm. on the show. Not very often, at least. What struck me was the pace of it was a lot slower. The Now, did you watch any of the, the test episode? I, I caught the test episode, and it caught me off guard because... I, I mean, I understand why they made some of the shifts that they did. It definitely wasn't as tight as the one that was originally or eventually broadcast. There's also a random cameo from, or I can't call it a cameo because he wasn't known yet. 
but you see a very young Luther Vandross in there, and I wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> yeah, you told me about that, and I thought that was funny. He shows up in the... I, I had to do a double take, too. I was like, maybe it's just someone that looks like him. So I had to look it up, and I was like, no, that's actually Luther Vandross, just, you know, in the 60s. And I don't think he really hit it big until, like, the seven, late 70s, maybe early 80s. I know that Bowie had a hand in that, but I don't remember the specifics. Yeah, there's that sequence where the choir comes in and sings about the alphabet. And he's front and center for it. But they're not quite a choir. No, it's... The setup is like a Baptist choir. It's it's the 80s music video. I really want to have a choir in my music video thing. That was just yeah. two or three decades ahead of time. Yet they were all wearing just groovy 1969 mm-hmm. clothes and singing more of an R&B number. Uh, they did use that stuff. I, I did. They did use that footage later on in further episodes. One thing that Sesame Street never did was waste a foot of film. Which is impressive. Well, if you even noticed in that first episode, it repeated... Part of the strategy of the show early on was to is was repetition. I was going to ask about that, actually, because it seems like it would be, if they're trying to reinforce lessons, it makes sense to repeat. But they would always frame it. There was an understanding of, I don't want to get too theoretical, but diegetic positioning in terms yeah. of where the kids are going to be viewing things from. And if they are supposed to be identifying with these characters, or if there is someone who's intended as something of an audience surrogate, you have to see them interacting with what they're observing instead of just being like, we're going to watch this now. A lot of these jingles, just like with a commercial or a TV theme song, these jingles are stuck in my head. The way to count to 10, the way to say the alphabet, you know, the way you say your alphabet. These things are kind of drilled into you through Sesame Street through the repetition. Now, I'll say in that test pilot, I think they went overboard. Hmm. They showed some things like four or five times. I think they did a couple of them back to back, too. Yeah. They were working with psychologists and trying to find a way for the experiment to work. So the only way you're going to do that is by iterating. Um, it makes sense that it took the form that it did and that it was as successful as it was, because I can't think of another show or movie that had that kind of scientific approach to relating to its audience. There are a lot of other ones that will bring in all sorts of technical expertise or anything else, but usually you've got someone with a single singular vision who's trying to push it in a given direction. Test groups and focus groups are part of television in it general. Is, but it's not... Not like this. Yeah, not like, this. like this is... It feels weird to think of it as like a unified front, but it, it kind of is. Like there's a very clear objective as opposed to just seeing what's going to stick. Like that objective is going to be there. Whereas my understanding, and I, I admit it's a limited understanding of your usual test case thing, is just being like, we want this to sell. How do we sell it? Yeah, but that's not what this was. No, they wanted people to be immersed and they wanted people to retain and that focus on retention i think is very key because when we think about our favorite jokes or stories or songs there is something in that that makes us want to remember and that's not necessarily the same thing that gets you to the thing in the first place it was researched within an inch of its life they made mistakes they took them back you know uh one of the more famous bits and i remember it from when I was a kid is when um, when they would get to the end of the number segment and the man would come out and say, like, you know, birthday they actually cut that pretty early because the psychologists were worried that kids under a certain age didn't like to see adults getting hurt. Interesting. I think that's BS because as a kid, I loved watching grownups fall down. I was a weird kid, but I definitely did too. I, I just don't think any kids were scarred by that. But again, that was part of their process of researching the show, 
of testing the show. I mean, they still test the show. It's the one television show I can say is more of an experiment, but it lasts 50 years, so it's hard to just call it an experiment. <laughs> what would you classify that as? I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a unique thing. It really is. Eight raspberry pudding desserts! Part of the dictate of it at the beginning was that it would be an ethnically diverse cast, and... The next two cast members, I think it added after the original four, were Luis and Maria, two Hispanic characters. So it did kind of stick to that model. As a kid, and I, I think this was the point, I never noticed that. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a white child in a small town in Ohio, didn't even phase me, which again was their point. I just remember it being, it was everything, <laughs> you know? It, was, it really was like and if you if you read a lot about it, and I highly recommend the books about it, but it worked. Kindergarten teachers were writing letters saying, what am I supposed to do? They already know the alphabet. Well, you, you also touched on something that we, we hadn't really seen in the same way from Henson at the, up until this point, which was the degree of merchandising. Sesame Street merchandising took off. There was a certain ubiquity to it by the time that I was of the target age range. But even then, I'd see toys that I knew were old that had all sorts of my favorite characters on it and little jingles or noisemakers or any number of other things. And it's always pushing that educational thing forward. But the difference is you take it from your screen and you keep it with you except for tickle me Elmo. I think that one was just kind of terrifying. That's a, that's a whole, that could be a whole podcast on tickle me Elmo. Um, <laughs> one of the things about this show was that Henson was very, even though he was very adamant that Muppets work for kids, this was a children's show and he knew that. I mean, he was already careful about merchandising his characters. He had done very little little of it before this, right? For Sesame Street, they had, he had struck this deal with Children's Television Workshop. He owned all of the characters, but they had the exclusive rights to use them. So while Cookie Monster and Count Von Count and Sherlock Hemlock or any of the other Sesame Street Muppets, while they were Henson owned, they could only be on Sesame Street. And so when it came to merchandising, what happened was Henson, well, first of all, the first thing he did was he quit doing commercials. Mm -hmm. The commercials ended when Sesame Street started because he did not want to conflate the Muppets with selling. You never know what they're going to be selling, you know, whether they're selling meat or cigarettes or whatever they're selling on the side. He didn't want those two things to be conflated. So he, he cut off basically the Muppets Inc. commercial train. Instead, they embraced the merchandising. So the deal I believe they came to was that Henson was still, Henson Associates at the time, Ha, as he liked to call it, was still retained the rights and control over the merchandising, but they split the money. And as time went on, CTW got less and less money from the government, especially during the Reagan years, shockingly, but they were able to survive on merchandising. That was one thing about Sesame Street toys. While it could feel commercial and crass, it wasn't. The, the, the toys, all that money was going to make the show. This, was, this show was a major shift for Henson. You know, the, the leaving the commercials behind, the embracing of merchandising, and just the scale of it. Nothing that they had done was anywhere close to how popular this was. He may not have known it when they started it, but they became famous so fast and created a, a great number of, of puppets for it over the years. And what I find most astounding is, I don't think Frank Oz stopped doing it until like 2008. <laughs> Henson was, like when Henson died, he would still go in several times a year to do Ernie. 
Like they, you know, this started in 1969. These guys stayed on it for 20, 30, 40 years because they were that dedicated to the show itself, to the mission of the show. So the Gordon on this is played by Matt Robinson, who is not my Gordon. He, he was only in the show for five or six years, I think. And then uh, another guy took over. And that's the Gordon that I grew up with. We meet him and, and it's a very kind of, it really does feel like a pilot, right? <laughs> yeah. You've got the audience surrogate. We're going to go around and meet all of the characters. Yeah, one at a time. Sally, you've never seen a street like Sesame Street. Everything happens here. You're going to love it. They're playing play games. To see. Hi, Bob. Hi. Say hello to Sally. She just moved into the neighborhood. Hi, Sally. That's Bob. You? Nice to see you. And Greetings, my friend. That's Hi, Mr. Mr. Hooper. Oh, Mr. Hooper. Here's a dime for your... Uh... For your paper. Thank you. Okay. See, he don't, Hi, yeah. Come here, Super. Come here. Say hello to Sally. Hello, Sally. Sally's new. She just moved into the neighborhood. Welcome, new Sally. <laughs> That's Mr. Hooper. Hi. He runs the store. Well, I want you to meet Susan. Susan? Yeah. You've established our uh, lead as a teacher, just to sort of drive that home a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, one thing to know, Susan, uh, Gordon's wife, was originally a homemaker. And over the course of, I think even just during the first season... They heard from now uh, the National Endowment of Women and Susan eventually got a job. The thing about Sesame Street that I find fascinating is because it's this combination of, well, because of the federal money and because of its mandate to educate, there's almost like a purity test you have to pass for Sesame Street. So Kermit the Frog was on the first season. He was in this episode. So that, that's one Muppet we forgot to mention, right? Uh, Kermit has a couple of bits. He has one with some characters and then he has a wrestling match with a letter w they had the the pre-named cookie monster w that kept turning into different letters and then there was a reprisal with kermit and the w talking about different things yeah and then he ends up w for wrestling yes. and he ends up wrestling it back a few years ago of course jim had made hey cinderella with tom whedon writing and john stone writing john stone of course went on to direct youth 68 with jim but hey cinderella didn't come out so Sesame Street happens, and they use Kermit because he is one of their most popular Muppets. Because of the success of Sesame Street, the network that had Hey Cinderella pulled it out of the, off the shelf because we go, hey, we got something Muppet, and they put it on the air. To Henson, he immediately thought, I have to take Kermit off the show because now Kermit is a commercial entity. Even though Hey Cinderella, it wasn't like Hey Cinderella was like, you know, the Super Bowl. I mean, it wasn't a huge hit or anything. But in his mind, and probably in, in Cooney's mind as well, when Kermit's doing a television show, he's selling things. Even if he's not technically, but the commercial breaks, the show is selling things. Oh, yeah. He exists as a brand after a certain point. Right. And they didn't want to associate that with Sesame Street because they wanted to keep this idea of it being pure, educational, non-commercial, government-sponsored. So as you'll see, Kermit actually disappears for the whole second season. He comes back in the third season for a few episodes, and he'll kind of be sprinkled in every once in a while for a few more years, but never as a regular again, always kind of as a guest star. It's just funny to me because it's full circle because it starts with Hey Cinderella. Sesame Street might not have happened this way if Hey Cinderella hadn't happened. It's just this kind of big Ouroboros loop that ends with Kermit getting kicked off of Sesame Street. He uh, he lands on his feet. That's He lands flippers, I guess, uh, just fine. But yeah, we don't see a whole lot of... Uh, one thing we talked about before in the original pilot presentation is that the Muppets don't interact with the humans. I mean, there's only two Muppets in the, in the, in the presentation, right? Yeah. And it reminds me as a, a parallel and I, 
I guess we couldn't really not mention Mr. Rogers' neighborhood would always make a very clear distinction with the land of make-believe. Yeah, so you had to get on the trolley. Yeah, the puppets there are always known as something fictional, whereas Sesame Street wants to be more immersive. And it's not just from a, a positioning standpoint, but everything about that street, everything about the world that those children would exist in is supposed to invite and sort of open you up to what you might not necessarily be able to gain access to if the target audience is preschool age children who don't necessarily have the means to go to preschool. Well, did you notice in the in the pilot presentation for the opening number, for the opening theme... In the on the show itself, on the, on the premiere, it was a it's a bunch of kids playing and stuff and running around. Mm-hmm. But on the pilot presentation, it's just two kids. I'm guessing like a brother and sister holding hands, and they're literally walking through New York, asking people how to get to Sesame Street. So they're actually like working their they're actually they're working their way through the city, and they'll stop someone. You don't hear what they're saying, obviously, because the song's playing. But it's actually the journey of these two kids, which is something I guess they abandoned that kind of more literal translation of the theme song. Mm. Listen, we're talking a bunch of, I'm going to call them uh, get out liberals. <laughs> it's kind of what they are. They would, they would have called themselves like Kennedy, new society, Kennedy Democrats, you know, mm-hmm. which they were. They meant well. Uh, uh, no. And they did. And I think they did well in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Again, we're talking the 1960s. So attitudes are different. So they were a bunch of lefties, but Instead of, you know, all of us heathens now, they were disgusted by, like, violence on television. They thought children's entertainment was all garbage. You know, Captain Kangaroo was probably the most well-thought-of uh, children's show at the time. Besides that, like, so they, they, they were very opinionated, and, and they wanted to make this show. And, and it, yes, there's almost, they meant well, and there are times where... I don't know, they, got the, they worked themselves in some corners with this stuff, <laughs> which we'll, we'll talk about. Like I said, we're grown-ass men, and this show is meant for preschoolers. So if you'll uh, indulge me for a second, I have a, a review for us to listen to. How old are you, Maddie? Four. Four? What did we watch today? Sesame Street! What'd you think of it? Good! And Oscar was around. And he wasn't being nice. You know, Oscar's never nice, is he? What? Was there any funny parts? I, of course, when those... He puts... Oh, beard on them. He puts what on there? Oh, and he put the beards on the other puppets? You like that part? Yeah. And plus, I threw the puppets instead of finger puppets. And Miss Piggy, if, if she wasn't, she could be mad without his boyfriend. And that was so silly. Plus, Kermit jumped off the table and hurt himself. And then what did he do? Did he end up fighting a W? Yeah, and of course, Cookie Monster ate the W. Thumbs up or thumbs down, good or bad? What is that? This means great, and this means okay, that's great, and this means no. Microphone can't see your thumb. This, it's up. Up. So that means great. Thumbs up, okay, cool. Thank you, Maddie. You're welcome. Um, that was my my four-year-old. I don't know where the Miss Piggy stuff came from. She's just waiting for her to show up. Yeah, and she also mentioned uh, one of the other bits where Gordon sits with a family of... Um, on the Muppets, they call them whatnots, but on Sesame Street, I think they call them anything Muppets, mm-hmm. which are the blank, kind of the blank slate Muppets that they can turn into anything. And there is, a, I think, a really fun bit in this episode where Gordon sits with a... basically creates a whole family of Muppets out of a bunch of anythings, 
as they come to life. My oldest daughter, uh, she reviewed it too. She's seven years old. She's a little beyond Sesame Street at this point. She still enjoys it. But the thing she had a big problem with, and I agree with her. I thought it was pretty nice, except for the cows. They weren't that they weren't that good. They were kind of, what should I say? A little boring. Boring? Yeah, it was six and a half minutes of cows telling you that cows make milk. You already knew that, didn't you? Yep. It was in- interminable. The whole theme is cows give milk. And then it's six and a half minutes of very languid, slow shots of cows with some kind of... I don't even know how to explain the music. <laughs> I just figured that was something that would have made more sense in the 60s. Maybe it wouldn't have. The music? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Raposo uh, was great, and he created some of those songs that are will be stuck in my head forever. But it was there was this actually reminded me of some of the music in Hey Cinderella <laughs> more than later Sesame Street stuff. Sesame Street's been on the air for a long time. Uh, for a show that seems to have been as beloved, there's have actually been controversies over the years and, and drama. I want to talk personally about one that's important to me because the episode of Sesame Street that stands out most to me is episode 1839, which aired November 4th, 1983. In 1982, Will Lee, who was the original cast member of the show who played Mr. Hooper, died suddenly. The producers of the show weren't sure what to do about that. Uh, Mr. Hooper had been a part of the show forever, and so they they did it the Sesame Street way, and they brought in child psychologists and sociologists and, and things like that. And they brought in people to give them advice on how to handle this. Do they ignore it? Do they replace him? Do they just say Mr. Hooper's gone away? Uh, you know, he, he retired. But instead, uh, they decided to attack it head on. November 24th, which was Thanksgiving Day, they wanted to make sure by having it be on Thanksgiving Day that there would be family members there with them. They had Big Bird, who's the child surrogate on the show, learn about Mr. Hooper's death. Where is he? I want to give it to him. I know. He's in the store. A Big Bird? Huh? He's, he's, he's not in there. Oh. Then where is he? Big Bird, uh, don't you remember we told you? Mr. Hooper died. He's dead. Oh, yeah. I remember. Well, I'll give it to him when he comes back. Big Bird, Mr. Hooper's not coming back. Why not? Big Bird, when when people die, they don't come back. Ever? No, never. Why not? Well, Big Bird... uh... They're dead. They they can't come back. Well, she's going to come back. Why, who's going to take care of the store? And who's going to make my birds eat milkshakes and, and tell me stories? Big Bird, I'm going to take care of the store. Mr. Hooper, he left it to me. And I'll make you your milkshakes and, and we'll all tell you stories and we'll make sure you're okay. Oh. Well, it won't be the same. You're right, Big Bird. It's, it's, it'll never be the same around here without him. Mm. But you know something? 
we can all be very happy that we had a chance to be with him and to know him yeah. and to love him a lot when he was here. Yeah. So that at the end is uh, Bob McGrath, who played Bob on the show, who of course had been on the show with Will Lee since the beginning. And by all accounts, they were barely holding it together. This is one of the more famous episodes of Sesame Street. I remember it very clearly. And this would have aired... Yeah, this aired around the time that my grandfather died. My grandfather died in 1983, a little earlier in the year. So this episode is... This moment, at least, is so... I actually think it's very important to my development. <laughs> this episode. And, and it is the episode that taught me about death. And about its finality. And, and how... It's okay to be sad, and it's okay to to miss the person. I don't know if you had ever seen this or heard this before. I hadn't, but it does remind me. I don't. I think it's something that I came across in like pre-show research into some of Jim Henson's life and his production philosophy. But he hated talking down to kids. Yeah, it was something that I really respected about him. Is he? They might not have all of the terms to engage with certain concepts or they might not have the frame of reference that an adult would or a teenager would or what have you but that didn't make them unintelligent um quite the opposite they were more likely to directly engage with something if given a little bit of a boost to do so sorry yeah this episode was written by norman styles just to give him credit um he said it was one of the hardest things he ever wrote and yeah they were just advised don't don't sugarcoat it <laughs> You know, like, like they were, they were, they were, they, they made sure not to use, notice they say die. They don't say pass away. Yeah. Those euphemisms are more for the, the adults and the kids in question. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. They don't use euphemisms. They don't dance around it. They're very clear. Um, you can tell when you watch the video that the cast is all very shaken. You know, they're talking about their friend and their castmate. You know, here you have this children's television show that is supposed to, you know, uh, sweep the clouds away but you know this was a moment that happened to them and they decided to express it and they decided to turn it into a lesson and i think it's a beautiful lesson carol spinney does such a good job uh we talked about how kind of twitchy and weird he was in the first episode but this was 14 years later he was he was established at this point his performance as big bird in this scene is so good the emotion was so written in the thing that the tears are real you know and uh and he said, but, and uh, our Elena, who played uh, a woman's not on the show, Olivia, Gordon's sister, I, I, she really lost it. But I said, but, it, but it's so sad. And she says, that's it. They were, they were, they were really bawling. Uh, and, you know, trying not to because cameras are rolling. And the, the show, the show was the very first take is what we did. We, they said, look, we're all here. Let's do it again. But the second one didn't have the same feeling. But uh, and then, but he said, but he's the one who's always told me stories. He made me birdseed milkshakes, and they said, well, we'll do those. We'll tell you stories, but, and we'll always remember what a wonderful person he was. And uh, so Big Bird says, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to hang it by my nest so I can always see him, and it's hanging there to this day. And uh, also imagine that he's doing it with his hand above his head <laughs> to operate Big Bird's mouth. And uh, he's looking at it on a little monitor in there. But he's so 
the innocence and the you know and I'm I, I I watch it I can't be helped but reminded my own kids and how they react to things and I don't know it, it it's a it's a very important episode of the show and I just I just wanted to bring it up but I don't like it it makes me sad we all feel sad Big Bird he's never coming back never no. oh I don't understand you know everything was just fine. Why does it have to be this way? Give me one good reason. Big Bird. It has to be this way. Because. Just because? Just because. Oh. You know... I'm going to miss you, Mr. Looper. That's Hooper, Big Bird. Hooper. <laughs> right. Sesame Street was aimed at, you know, by these uh, well-meaning, left-leaning white people. It was meant to appeal to an inner-city children, to underprivileged children. Because of that, the cast was diverse. The human cast was diverse. If you would have asked the Muppet crew, including Henson, in 1969, why they didn't have any African-American or black Muppets, he would say, we don't have any white Muppets either. They're green and they're orange and they're purple. And while that's true, they're still all culturally white because they're all operated and voiced by white men. And so early on, Matt Robinson, who uh, played Gordon, helped create a character uh, named Roosevelt Franklin. I guess I heard somebody wrong. Somebody called me by both my names, my first name first and then my second name second. Yes, Roosevelt. We don't know the days of the weekend. We know you know. Well, Scooby-Doo-Doo-Doo, I'll make a deal with you. I'll tell you the days of the week. If you get together and get me a plate of string beans because you know I dig me some string beans. Well, I'll pick and I'll step do you know anything about Roosevelt Franklin? Um, he was, I think he'd been retired by the time that I was watching Sesame Street, but looking into it a bit, he wouldn't have been out of place in like a sort of a schoolhouse rock setting just because he was someone that spoke in vernacular a lot and he was supposed to be that hip kid. Robinson wanted to bring a, a voice that was, that kids that he knew would identify with more. Here, let's let's play a little clip of how Roosevelt talked because it is important to understand how he, the the kind of character he was before we talk about the kind of controversy. Rhyme time, rhyme time. Everybody ready for rhyme time? Roosevelt Franklin, are you gonna make us rhyme some more old dumb words? No, Susetta something. I'm gonna tell a story about the hardest name in the world to rhyme. Oh well, that's different. That's right, and the name of this story is. Morty Moot Mope. Who? Morty Moot Mope. Just like I said, now pay attention. So Roosevelt was one of the cooler characters, I think. But he was voiced by Matt Robinson. His mother was voiced by Loretta Long, who played Susan, who played Gordon's wife on the show. Uh, they were both African-American. Roosevelt became a, a big source of controversy. <laughs> He was very popular. In fact, in the early years, uh, starting in 1970, so that would have been the second season, he was, a, he was kind of a main character. 
he had there was a, a skit called Roosevelt Franklin Elementary School, where it was a you know it was a, it was a classroom, but there didn't seem to be a teacher. <laughs> like Roosevelt would come in and he would teach the class stuff. Uh, there's a really really good uh, episode where he he basically uh, one person in the class he asked them if they know anything about Africa, and someone says I know all about Africa. I've seen Tarzan. And he then goes, he sings a song, then he pulls out a map, and he still sings a song telling you about all a bunch of different things about Africa. He talked, quote-unquote, hip. He was kind of the, the, the beat poet of the Muppets. Do you remember what happened to him? Why he went away? They retired him because some of the academics worried that him speaking in, I, I guess, dialect was setting a bad example for the kids that would be watching, which is a thorny and complicated topic even today. Well, I was going to, as a white guy, I was planning on solving it today. That is a terrible yeah. idea, but I'm going to watch you yeah, do it. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to solve black representation in media right now, Nick. I'm going to solve it for you right now. Uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will be at the funeral. It is a very... <laughs> I'm going to miss you. <laughs> it is uh, a very, it is a very <laughs> tricky topic. It is, and I think that you can't really approach it without discussing things like code switching or why that would... Yeah. Why that, that's an emergent thing, yeah. right? The idea that there is one way to talk or that English, the Queen's English perhaps, is the right way to speak completely eliminates a lot of the basic ways that English works as a language and just how much it steals from other languages or the way that dialects, like localized dialect, will affect the way that, say, someone from Appalachia talks versus someone from Scotland versus someone from uh, Belize or anywhere else from queens or something yeah and and even there if you if you want someone to learn something new on a very basic level regardless of who you're talking to or what age they are or what their circumstances in order for anyone to learn something new they have to first accept that something is true and then you draw a comparison or a line from that to whatever the new concept is right for people who aren't used to hearing people talk in a more, I don't want to call it formal, but a, I guess a more standardized way, it's nice to see or hear someone that talks the way that you do. Right. And for a lot of people who are used to moving through different social circles or social contexts, you know that on a, a, a subliminal level, you know that what you say is more likely to be recognized and received if dressed up in certain ways right and to assume that on one hand all people should talk exactly this way in order to be taken seriously does a disservice to a lot of people but at the same time depending on what your goals are you will need to know how to switch it switch those hats and it's it's not said, I don't say that statement to chastise no, anyone or to make anyone feel bad, nothing like that. It's just on a very basic level, you're going to figure out what game you're playing and how to play that game. Yeah, the idea the idea of code switching is a, is something I've only said as a white guy, I've only been kind of aware of in the last you know decade or so of my life, that concept um, of, of changing how you talk depending on who you're with. I know a lot of people didn't necessarily have a name for until relatively recently, but a lot of a lot of people I've known personally throughout my life are just familiar with it. You you do certain things in certain contexts, you don't do it in other contexts. There are certain jokes it's okay to tell here as opposed to elsewhere. Right. 
for me personally, there are a lot of people that'll think that I'm very quiet until they see me in a different circumstance and I crack a joke that I probably wouldn't crack in polite company. And they, whatever their earlier concept is, is different. And I'm not being dishonest in the other context. Yeah. It's just which side of the mask do you show here? As much as I joked earlier, I don't feel at all qualified to level an opinion of whether or not Roosevelt was too black or not black enough. Uh, shockingly, I'm not qualified to make that call. The battle for his existence, really, <laughs> was within black creators and fans and producers and executives. The, the person who created him and voiced him and wrote him was, was an African-American man, but the critics of him were also african-american and there were critics that thought he wasn't black enough well that's i mean that's not something that would be list or limited to that subculture that's going to be anytime you you want someone to be representative there's going to be someone that you're upsetting quest love from mm -hmm. the roots has mentioned many times how much he loved roosevelt franklin as a kid because he loved sesame street but then there was this kid that talked like mm -hmm. him I think that's what Robinson was going for. And, and then forces kind of came together to, you know, he basically got kicked off the show. He would make appearances here and there, uh, us but usually in um, reused material. Like we said, they would reuse skits all the time. Because of this, um, because of what happened with Roosevelt Franklin, I think it created for a very long time, probably to this day, one of the failings of Sesame Street is they never really were able to crack how to do this. You know what I mean? They were never really able to crack how to do a black Muppet. Uh, they eventually, they eventually had a uh, Rosita, the, the Mexican mm -hmm. girl who spoke Spanish and, and they would do it. But, and I think this applies to the Muppets altogether, to be honest with you, that there's this, because they're all purple, you know, Frank uh, Roosevelt was blue. It was purple. He wasn't Brown. He was purple. There's a, because they're all sorts of different colors and everything, in order to portray different cultures and races, there's this line, right? <laughs> like, where, you know, Robinson decided Franklin should talk like a kid, you know, a kid from Harlem, right? So that's where they were trying to reach. And that was considered by some to be, you know, stereotypical, cliched, offensive. And I think they got gun-shy, after Roosevelt Franklin, mm -hmm. because how do you, because it's kind of a rock and a hard place. And again, here's Cooney, uh, who's, she's running the whole show and, and she's kind of, you know, rightfully so listening to the minority voices, you know, that she's employed and that she's working with to try to suss this out. But I think it did create a failing in the show that they didn't, it's hard for them to address. I mean, I asked my wife tonight, what, what, can you think of a of a, a Muppet that when he comes to your mind is black? I'm forgetting his name, but I know he was a big one on uh, Muppets Tonight. I think he was played by Cliff Clifford. Yeah. yeah. Clifford. Clifford. He didn't come around till 1990. In fact, uh, he, he was, he was uh, voiced by Kevin Clash, who was the first major, of course, black uh, Muppet performer. And, and that's 1990. I just, I don't know. I, it, 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 it's an interesting subject to me because as a, as a, uh, a well-meaning get-out liberal myself, I look at this and I don't know how to crack it. <laughs> like I said, so I'm not going to solve it tonight. But I don't know how you do represent someone of a different culture, of a different, from a different background or something in this form, in these puppets. 
that are that are by nature broad, right? These puppets are broad. They have broad characteristics. They have loud characteristics. Kind of, but I, I think my my suggestion is kind of callous. The best thing you can do is make them a character. Um, if you if oh, you course. give them multiple yeah. dimensions, you're still going to upset people. And this is this isn't something limited to Muppets or cartoons or anything else like that. But just generally speaking, especially if there is a a marginalized perspective or anything else like that, if you can make them a fully fleshed out and faceted character, and I understand that these are Muppets and it's a children's show, and you're not necessarily going to go into what their core wounds or their tragic backstories are. And there's no one way for a, a given subgroup of people to manifest. So if you understand that, right. If But if you, if you understand that, you understand that if I've got a singular character, some people are going to recognize aspects of themselves in this, and others are not. Or others are going to see perhaps an aspect of themselves that they would reject, and they are going to reject this character out of hand. One of the worst things you can try to do is make a squeaky clean inoffensive character because it's not going to it it won't be genuine roosevelt was a good kid and he was a little rowdy and i love him that's that's the other thing that bothers me about this uh just personally just selfishly is i think he's really funny but he's also very like he's pretty erudite yeah he's real smart he's said he's teaching the class like he's the he's a he is one of the smarter of all the puppets they ever had on sesame street he he was Again, in the Roosevelt Franklin Elementary School sketches, he was the one teaching everyone the letters and the days of the week and in a, a map of Africa. Like, he was the one, he was the smartest one of the bunch. There are multiple layers to that as well because he knew how to manage his class. He understood the personalities of all of the other Muppets in that room. And sometimes he would play them against each other, sure. But he was keeping step with all of the kids in that class. If someone who was very formal were to go into that class, they might not know how to handle it. But if you go to those scenes, the classmates have black voices oh, yeah. too. Huh. Like it's meant to be like a, like a better phrase, it's meant to be like an inner city elementary school, you know? And it, it just, it's just, uh, I find it a, a fascinating topic that I don't think the Muppets have cracked. And I also think it applies to female representation as well. We had a terrible time and it now came at us about that too and a lot of women's groups that we had no female and women, just mothers, that we had no female puppets. Um, we now have Zoe and we have Betty Lou and we have uh, Rosita, but they'll, they'll, they never have had the impact of the major male Muppets, and so be it, you know. Jim but, is Jim. Jim is not around anymore to kick around over this. Uh, and I, the issue seems to have sort of died down. Uh, if people want to know, there's, he put out, there's actually the best Sesame Street album of all time. <laughs> it's called The Year of Roosevelt Franklin. And it's a bunch of Roosevelt Franklin songs that, Gore, that uh, uh, Matt Robinson put together and created. It's awesome. He's a cool character that kind of got left in the dust, and 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 all Robinson was, I think, honestly trying to do was give young kids of color a Muppet that sounded like them. <laughs> you know, Robinson did not stay on the show very long after that. Mm. Um, I think it disillusioned him a little bit with the thing. I think Cooney regrets some of it. It and, and like I said, I think it haunted them. I think they never quite got over uh, Roosevelt Franklin. But they didn't stop with their 
let's see, I don't know, social justice warrior ways. Um, <laughs> other thing I wanted to bring up before we get too far, or you know, before we wrap it up, is what something the Muppets did, or uh, what Sesame Street did, was they started creating what I would call social issue characters. Uh, if anybody now, they're not the most popular characters, but I think the most, the one that got the most press was a character named Cammy in 2002 who she only appeared on the South African version of Sesame Street that's the other thing Sesame Street is like airs everywhere right and there's different versions of different countries but in 2002 she was introduced on the South African version and she was HIV positive and she was designed to be on the South African Sesame Street to help the children of South Africa better understand the AIDS crisis in Africa Later, we would have Lily, who was homeless. Alex, whose dad was in prison. Uh, Abby Kadabi, who is the kind of fun fairy girl on the show. Uh, her parents are divorced. Julia is a character that came on. She has autism. And Car- there's Carl. Uh, there's there's. See, I have two named Carly, but they're spelled differently. But there's one girl who's uh, was dealing with addiction. Her parents had addiction issues. And then there was another one who was in foster care. And so over the years, they've done these. Uh, I don't want to. They're characters. They still, you know, Rosita was an attempt to uh, bring a, a, a Latinx character to the show uh, or a Muppet to the show. And again, that's what's part of the thing that's strange, right? Is the cast has always been diverse. But the kids aren't. Yeah, but the Muppets aren't. Yeah. Like the human cast has always been that way, and and the Muppets haven't been. But uh, I I just want to bring up the, it's really cool though. I like I like this trend though, where they were just create these these characters, you know, to deal with some hard stuff. I mean, real quick, I got a clip of um, this is Alex talking about uh, he's been he's been asked questions about his dad, and here's what he has to say. It's just all this talk about my dad and where he is. Got me really upset. Oh, because your daddy's away? Uh, and you miss him? Yeah, but because of where he is, too. My dad is... My dad's in jail. In jail? Why? I don't like to talk about it. Most people don't understand. Actually, I do understand what you're going through. When I was about your age, my dad was incarcerated, too. He was? Wait, um, what's carcerated, and why was your dad in it? Incarcerated is when someone breaks the law, a grown-up rule, and then they have to go to jail or prison. I think a lot of times things that we, we think are talking to children are partially due to the way... Like, there are obviously things that are super, super traumatic no matter how you dress it up, but sometimes they will be presented in a way that sort of exacerbates the issue with all the intention of doing the exact opposite. And I, I can't think of a succinct example for that, but the way that they're going about this and the fact that they are discussing, I guess, adult things in frank terms. This, this attitude that Sesame Street has, and again, I'm sure they've balked at it at times, but this show that is ostensibly for children, they don't have to cover HIV. They don't have to talk about homelessness, but that's their mission is to educate children, to make children less afraid of the world, I think. To let them know they're not alone. 
but it speaks to this greater mission that the show has that I admire that has not been flawless. I don't think we can say it's, it's uh, another example is, uh, did you read about Mr. Snuffleupagus and what happened with him? In his earliest appearances, I think people thought that he might've been Big Bird's imaginary friend. Yeah, he was for a long time. He was Big Bird's imaginary friend. Snuffy's a big two person kind of woolly mammoth elephant looking thing. And it, it was sort of a rolling joke that Big Bird would try to draw people's attention to Snuffleupagus and he would, always just sort of step out of the shot. Yeah, and he was created to be that, to be the to tell kids it's okay to have an imaginary friend. You know? It's a, a, okay to to use your imagination to do these things. But they but they you remember why they changed him? I, I believe it was a, a fear of childhood abuse and kids not being believe, or kids feeling as though they wouldn't be believed if they reported things. So with the the regular punchline being that people thought that Big Bird was just making things up when he talked about Snuffleupagus. Uh, I think the fear was that kids would internalize that and assume that people wouldn't take them seriously if they talked about something. Yeah, that adults wouldn't listen to them about important things. At last! Oh, joy, joy! I told you there was a Snuffleupagus, and at last, you've seen him, and you got to believe it, right? I told you all along that there was a Snuffleupagus, my best pal. He's not imaginary, but... You never believed me. No, but, but Maria and, and Linda and I believed you, Big Bird. Yeah, but the rest of you didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right, we did, but. Well, but what? Yeah, but what, but what? Yeah, but what? Mm, but, well, uh. Big Bird, you have a right to be angry. Uh, I do? Yes, you do, because after all this time and we didn't believe you, that must have been very hard for you. Well, yeah, it was. Well, Big Bird, from the bottom of my heart, I want to apologize, because I'm really sorry. Oh. <laughs> Big Bird, hmm? you know what? From now on, we'll believe you whenever you tell us something. Yes. Promise? Yes. Promise. 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 Maybe we should get that in writing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of course correction that I think this show is capable of that a lot of shows can't because of the way that it's made. <laughs> because of the way that it's built. Because, you know, they probably had some child psychologists going like, yeah, I don't know if I like how Big Bird's, the Big Bird Snuffy thing works. And then they, they workshop it and they think about it and they probably test it. And again, this thing is... It's really weird to, like, heat praise on a show that feels like it's made in a lab. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's an institution at this point. By and large, that core mission hasn't changed. They're trying to lay a really strong foundation for kids to sort of build on. It spawned. Uh, then it would go on to spawn shows like The Electric Company, which, for anything else, gave us Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I can still count to ten in Spanish because of Sesame Street. Like, there are jingles and scenes and, and just words in my head that are just drilled in because of Sesame Street, which is what their intention was. Now, is that the exact right way to educate a kid? I can't tell you. There's probably no one right way. But I can still count to ten in Spanish. <laughs> uh, there's a couple other big incidents, big things that happened along the way. Uh, Luis and Maria got married, and that was a big deal. Uh, Gordon and Susan adopted a child instead of having a child at one point. 
So I think they even dealt with infertility a little bit there. The one person we haven't mentioned as much in this episode is Jim Henson. People tend to think of Sesame Street as as a Henson thing. And yes, the Muppets are a huge part of Sesame Street. I don't think Sesame Street succeeds as at least as well as it did without them. But he did not create the show. This show is a creation of many people, but I think Joan Cooney is the person who deserves the most credit, who fought the hardest, who stayed with it the longest. She just retired not too long ago. I don't mind taking a little bit of a time out. It's still part of his story. But I don't mind taking a little time out to talk about this important show that he was involved in. But, you know, they still had plenty of Muppets. You mentioned Grover, several monsters like Telly and Harry Monster, Guy Smiley, who's kind of a, a Henson's uh, salesman type character, uh, obviously Cookie Monster and the, the amazing Mumford. And then there's Elmo. I don't do you now when you were when you were a kid when you watched it was Elmo on the show yet? I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah. Well, he's he's always kind of in part of it, but I couldn't tell you exactly when he went in. Yeah, he didn't come in until the 80s, I mm-hmm. think. But he or yeah, I think he's the 80s or at least in his form. Lots of people performed Elmo, but Elmo didn't become a star until Kevin Clash took him. The thing and Elmo kind of became Sesame Street. <laughs> In modern episodes of Sesame Street, there's a thing called Elmo's World, which is in the middle of an episode of Sesame Street, it has a little mini episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse, not as as weird or subversive, but a little episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse where Elmo gets kind of his own show in the middle of it. I mean, he he has a talk show on Disney Plus, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was was too old by then to be watching it, but... It definitely, it became the Elmo show for a very long time. And Kevin Clash became, you know, a huge star in the uh, Muppet organization because of him. There was some, a little bit of controversy with him near the end. Um, although he still works for Henson. He worked on the Dark Crystal series. Uh, news, the Dark Crystal is not renewed. Uh, yeah. They're not doing a second season of Age of Resistance. And we're very, very sad about that. There are so many Calflings. Yeah, I know. But uh, Kevin Clash actually played Agra. In the new series. Interesting. My kids, as far as today goes, uh, my children enjoy Sesame Street, but it doesn't enrapture them in the same way it did me. Maybe there's just more choices? There's a lot more that's probably significantly more flashy and trying to gain the kids' attentions, too. Because I have to imagine a lot of children's programming isn't necessarily as focused on educating or laying that groundwork in the same way that Sesame Street is. There are some good ones. My kids really like like Magic School Bus, which they've brought back actually new episodes of, and they really enjoy that. And that's, you know, that's a fine educational show. I I think what you mentioned him earlier, but, you know, the other show that was happening at the same time was uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which could kind of like not be more different (laughs) than Sesame Street. It's sort of the, uh, or the solo versus the ensemble. Well, it's also, I mean, Sesame Street was based on Cooney's, one of her, uh, other than commercials, one of her, her big influences was the uh, uh, Laugh-In, the 1960s uh, comedy show Laugh-In. I also see a little bit of Holy Grail in there, or not Holy Grail, so a flying circus too. Mm-hmm. But just the, the way it cuts and the, the speed of it and the, the interstitials and all this stuff. And Fred Rogers was very slow. 
I don't think that had an adverse effect on the quality. Like, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I could still watch today and be fine, but it is something that would sort of be relaxing, like the joy of painting or something. It wouldn't be... Well, yeah, well, Bob Ross is a whole other thing. I want to do a whole Bob Ross podcast someday. I could do that. <laughs> but, uh, I, there's, I mean, I, I still I watch Bob Ross episodes. When things are getting a little rough in the world, <laughs> there's nothing like, like pounding just a couple of Bob Ross episodes in a row and just kind of just hanging out with the happy trees. And it's just, oh, his voice is so soothing. And uh, I, I, I genuinely love that man. Uh, Fred Rogers was not a fan of Sesame Street. He thought it was too loud and too fast for children. He, what he, when he looked at Sesame Street, he saw what Joan Cooney saw in the shows that she didn't like. Mm. He thought it was just more of the same. Although what's, what's fascinating with Fred Rogers, though, is he also addressed social issues and real issues. He just did it in a more, sometimes actually more conspicuous way. Yeah, I think Fred really wanted you to see the scenes. Yeah. Sesame Street wanted everything to be completely immersed and integrated, and Fred wanted you to know where something began and something else end, uh, ended. Well, he there's the fam- very famous episode of Mr. Rogers where I believe it was in the aftermath of uh, Martin Luther King's death, mm-hmm. where he had the postman, I think it's the postman on the show, who was black. Yes, they washed the, and, their feet and, in the... And, and the like, pool together. Mm-hmm. That was his, you know, I mean, he was a, God, was he a Presbyterian? I want to say yes. So, you know, obviously the feet washing has some religious tone overtones to it as well. But what he was really just trying to say, he was trying to make his statement on race in the same way that Sesame Street had, but Sesame Street had just done it differently. However, they did make up, he did appear on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. For one episode. And so they kind of squashed, I guess, their beef. I don't think Sesame Street had any problem with him. But uh, they were they were all 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 people trying to do the same thing. Who is it? It's Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, come in. Thank you, Big Bird. You came back. Yes, well, I wanted us to have a visit. We didn't get to know each other before. Wait a minute. Were you really here before? I mean, you know, when I raced with Mr. Snuffleupagus. Mm-hmm. I was here. Hmm. I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure you're here now, because my friends told me that I was just pretending and imagining that you were here, so I think I'm just pretending you're here now. You're not pretending. I'm really here. It was was fun to go back and watch this very first episode. It was closer to the shows I grew up with than what my kids watch, but it was still detached enough where, again, it was that, you know, it's, it's the first episode. Like... I probably did. I didn't start. I mean, I didn't come around for another seven years, so they were in full swing by then. But it, it was fun to go back and watch this. You know, this is part of Henson's rise. No, it's absolutely part of that. But this is the moment the Muppets go through the roof. And chocolate layer cakes. Sesame Street has been on the air for fifty-one years at the time of this recording. It's on HBO now, which yeah feels kind of weird but the episodes still come on PBS. Most of the original characters, both flesh and felt, are gone, replaced with puppets designed to appeal to the latest generation of children. Look, neither you, dear listener, nor I, your humble host, had the time to walk through a half-century of Sesame Street. I hope you check out the books we mentioned, Street Gang and Sunny Days, 
and there are plenty of other resources out there if you want to know more about the show's history. We hope this episode holds its own in kind of a Cliff Notes version, but it is in no way the whole story. We're hoping this podcast will last for many years, with 100, 200 episodes in front of us. And we're going to talk about a lot of amazing things. But nothing we talk about from here on out will be as important as Sesame Street. Not by a country mile. It helped make me who I am today, and I am not alone. There are a lot of us. And for the record, uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, diez. Still got it. Sesame Street taught me that 40 years ago. Now you say it, and then let me say it, so I will make sure I understand, okay? Uno. Uno. Dos. Dos. Tres. Tres. Cuatro. Cuatro. Cinco. Cinco. Seis. Seis. Siete. Siete. Ocho. Ocho. Nueve. Nueve. Diez. Diez. And I'll remember it till the day I die. Next time, frogs and frackles and elves. Oh my. Ready on the stump? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. I am. Somebody. I am. Somebody. I may be poor. But I am. Somebody. I may be young. But I am. Somebody. I may be on welfare. But I am. Somebody. I may be small. But I am. Somebody. I may make a mistake. I may make mistake. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. My clothes are different. My clothes are different. My face is different. My face is different. My hair is different. My hair is different. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. I am black. I am black. Brown. Brown. White. White. I speak a different language. I speak a different language. But I must be respected. Protected, never rejected. I am God's child. I am somebody. Give yourself a big hand. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.